in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today are two good friends and two good co-hosts. Say hi, Lizzie Haynes. Hey, everybody. Excited to be here. Excited to talk about tonight's movie. Say hi, Chad Robinson. I'm tempted to say I'm excited for a new configuration and just gaslight our listeners, confuse (laughs) them. We've never been in this configuration before. And we are back. Twice a year, it seems, the three yes. of us here. And if it's three hosts, you know that it's a dealer's choice episode. We got a fun movie tonight. But before we get into that movie, let's ask a couple questions. Lizzie, what was one of your most beloved and prized toys as a child? American Girl dolls, for sure. I had two, Samantha and then I think Molly was her name. And mm-hmm. it was an obsession. I mean, any millennial girl... I think can appreciate the craze that was American Girl dolls. And my mom actually gave me a trunk about a year ago that was filled with all of my American Girl doll stuff that she saved so that I can pass it to my daughter when she's old enough. I'm so excited. That's precious. Oh, oh but you're rich now. Those things are worth a ton. <laughs> One of these days, I'll take her to Chicago to the American Girl Store, that was a bucket list for me as a kid, so I got to do it for Conley one day. Huh. Were American Girl dolls meant to be played with? Yeah. My sister had a bed and, like, different clothing. Yeah. I did. I did, for sure. And they came with little books with their biographies, and anybody that is excited about the new Barbie movie coming up, definitely check out the SNL skit where they spoof the trailer with American Girl dolls. It's pretty funny. (laughs) There's only one thing I have to say about the Barbie movie, which is that if they don't incorporate it into other toy-related big media franchises like Transformers or G.I. Joe, then they're really missing out. Because I think they've got a lot of star power there. And if you don't somehow have those worlds collide, I think you're missing a big opportunity. What was one of your most beloved and prized toys, Chad? I was such a huge Ninja Turtles fan growing up. I had different iterations, but I think my favorite figure, I'm a Leonardo guy. And there was a movie edition. They had just a different texture to them. So the movie special edition of Leonardo was my favorite. No, that is cool. I had a movie edition Shredder. Yes. uh, That, in fact, I liked the Shredder character so much, I had a stuffed animal that I named Shredder, only he was just like a floppy-eared dog, (laughs) and he was a snowboarder because he shreds. Oh, nice, nice. You get it, you get it. Okay, well, uh, my, my toy, I was a Lego kid. 
Uh, and now that I've got some bread, I do kind of dream about building the big Lego sets that are running like three, four, five hundred dollars now. Um, they're so expensive. They're yes. way too expensive. But there's an NBA center in the league for the Pacers. I think Brian likes the Pacers. Uh, his name is Miles Turner. And like a lot of NBA players, when they hit the league, you know, they get that first check and they buy a car, they buy their mama house. He just bought all the Legos he wanted. And I kind of look forward to someday, like, I'd love to have, like, each starfighter from Star Wars. I'd love to have an X-Wing. I'd love to have a Millennium Falcon. I just had a big red bucket full of, like, cast-off Legos that I'd make whatever with. That was my thing. Oh, the $800 executor. Really? $800? But, what, like, is it the size of your dining room table? Pretty much, yes. That is very cool. That is... I, like absolutely no like sarcasm. <laughs> that is so cool to me. <laughs> I, I, I want, agree. I want that. Lizzie, what's the last movie you saw? So lately I've been on this kick of wanting to rewatch movies that just remind me of my old college days. So I rewatched the whole Hunger Games franchise. <laughs> I read the books the in college. Thing. All four. I really, really loved the books in college and I hadn't seen them in a long time. So I revisited all of those and I they hold up. That falls into the categories of things I've never seen, never really consumed. Never seen it. You should give it a shot. Never read, never seen. Uh, when I think I've said this before. Like when I miss something, I really miss it. Yes. Uh, when did the first one come out? Oh gosh. I think my husband and I were dating at this point. And so I want to say maybe like 2010 Maybe something like that. It means it's eligible to do on the show. So I guess that's one way for me to watch it. It sure is. It's really good. People sometimes lump it into Twilight, which I'm not going to be here and lie that I don't like Twilight. But I also can appreciate how Twilight is a lot more shallow and vapid than The Hunger Games. So yes, there's a love triangle and all the things, but it has a lot more meat to it than than Twilight. So I, I I would recommend it. Kids are killing each other. (laughs) (laughs) Who wants to line up for kids killing each other? We've got a triangle, the strongest shape. Chad, what's the last movie that you saw? So I've been on a huge Vincent Price kick. I am trying to watch all of his horror movies. And the last one I saw is just insane. So it is Tomb of Laia. And that's an Edgar Allan Poe story. It's got these gorgeous gothic sets. But it also has Vincent Price fighting a cat. And at one point, he throws a cabbage at this cat. Later on, he actually acknowledges that he's done so. And the the epic conclusion is the house is on fire. And you're expecting this big showdown. And there is a normal black cat that he is strangling and wrestling what? with. And I'm, I'm a little concerned for the cat. I feel bad. Like, this was in the... 50s, 60s, so uh, I'm concerned wow. what happened to the cat. No. <laughs> yeah. Is it, you said it was an Ed, Edgar Allan Poe story. Were they trying to like tie in the black cat maybe? No, no. This, this is the actual uh, Tomb of Lagia, uh, mm. Edgar Allan Poe. So there, there's a whole – Roger Corman took a whole bunch of these type tales and just made – 90 minute horror movies out of them for no good reason, even though the stories are yeah, yay big. They're very, very, they're short stories. But 
the ending always like this is something that should have been left in a book man wrestles with small black cat and epic conclusion that's something literature can handle big screen it looks ridiculous yeah i don't know you take a story you put it into 90 minutes it's right in my wheelhouse oh all of vincent price his movies are just that happy space they're like 70 to 90 minutes amazing oh what a dream yes i love that idea uh for me I had the privilege, I actually texted you guys and told you about it. I had the luxury of sitting down and watching The 40-Year-Old Virgin with my (laughs) friend who had never seen it before. And I think that's an 04 movie. So we're looking at 19 years old. Crazy to think about uh, how far away. In fact, it's so so long ago that it was like Jonah Hill's like second on-screen performance ever and only Seth Rogen's like third on-screen performance so like this is really early in some of these guys' yep. careers, and uh, he, he'd actually he'd been locked up for a little bit, so he, he's missed a bunch of stuff that's become I think like comedy milestones. I can't wait for the opportunity to like watch Step Brothers or Talladega Nights with him, just because he was falling about the place, and it's sort of how how did you not know? Oh well, I guess you didn't have movies where you were at. Uh, so that was it was just a real fun experience to be able to share that. Yeah, that's super cool. That's a great movie. Jonah Hill, his cameo with the "We sell your stuff on eBay" with the sh- I just want to buy these shoes. <laughs> yeah, how about I give you money? Yeah, <laughs> we have the shoes. So I can take them home and wear them. Well, speaking of sharing, one thing you share is your toys. We asked about your toys. We want to talk about toys. Why is that, Lizzie? What movie are we covering? We are covering 1992's Toys. And who chose this movie for us? Me. <laughs> you said, <laughs> let's watch toys. I said, all right, yes. I don't know anything about this. Let's let's uh, let's watch 1992's Toys, starring Robin Williams, Michael Gambon, Joan Cusack, Robin Wright, and LL Cool J. It had a $50 million budget. It only grossed $23 million, so not yeah. a big, not a big spike in the box office. It finished 54th that year, uh, just... Uh, ahead of Thunderheart, which by name alone I probably want to see, and just behind Leap of Faith, the number one movie that year, another Robin Williams flick, Aladdin. IMDb rating of 5.1, and Rotten Tomatoes here, the critics give it a 29%, the audience a little more favorable with 39%. Not nominated for very many awards, doesn't win any awards, uh, it, it does find itself on the list for the Golden Raspberries for Worst <laughs> Director, Barry Levinson, but he lost. So uh, we don't have to ascribe that to the legacy of toys. So, uh, Lizzie, I have to presume you've seen this before. Tell us about introducing toys to the Retro Movie Roundtable. We covered Princess Bride a little bit ago with Chad and one of my besties, Leah, and she made a point to say that that particular movie was a staple in her family. And I just got my wheels turning of what were the staples in mine. This was absolutely one of them. Like to be totally fair, there's a lot of adult humor that just went right above my head as a kid. Just the silliness of it. And as a kid, it felt just so bright and colorful and just so much fun. And we – Robin Williams is just – like on a pedestal in our family. 
And so to me, this movie just had everything to offer. And every single Christmas, we would sit around and watch the movie, even though it's not technically a Christmas movie. But it's just been such a treat in our family. And I just – I want not many people have heard of this movie or if they have, they've never watched it. So we got to get it out there. Let people watch it. I would allow this to be considered a Christmas movie. We spend 10 kind of unnecessary minutes in the beginning (laughs) on a Christmas pageant and it even ends in a Christmas song. Yeah, it feels fair. I mean, if Die Hard can be a Christmas movie, I think that this can categorize itself as a Christmas movie. That's a different fight. (laughs) For any of you listeners who like engaging in those kind of debates, I just like to put out there that if it helps you, there is a difference between Christmas movies and movies that occur during Christmas. That's fair. Uh, and, but I will say um, I don't have a dog in either fight because I think fighting about movies is a waste of time. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, it is It is at least seven full minutes of a Christmas pageant at the beginning. Uh, but, right, so did you guys watch it at Christmas? Every Christmas. We would watch it on at my grandparents' house at their family farm. We would all just gather around and watch it. And we all had our own favorite scenes that we would look forward to. But as a kid, my absolute favorite scene was that opening part, particularly with that sweet little song that they sing and the closing of the year. And it's such a bummer. You cannot find the soundtrack anywhere. But it just it, – it was just one of those every year you got to whip it out and watch it. So – it's the ultimate nostalgic movie for me. That's interesting. I, I did when we used to talk about staples. I think that's the easiest place to go. Is oh yeah, we all sit down around the holidays, and that's when we watch these movies. Chad, what was your experience with the movie Toys before our uh, podcast? None whatsoever. So this was this was one when I w- twofold. I was excited because it was Robin Williams, but then I looked at the critics and I'm like oh no what is happening and then lizzie doubles down and makes it even more difficult and she's like this was a childhood staple and <laughs> i have not been in any of these childhood staple movies but i have been very unkind to them in our ratings at the end of the year so i'm sorry to the legends and the flight of the navigator fans like i got to these movies as an adult and as an adult, I'm not having a good time in those movies. This one was different. Yay! <laughs> yeah, this uh, this movie has one thing going for it, is that it's not about bicycle racing. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> Breaking away. I don't think there was a childhood classic, but Russell's still mad about that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, I had no expectations aside from some belief. I don't know what it was. Maybe it's the poster. Maybe it's that movie poster with him wearing the bowler hat and inside the bowler hat, it's another version of him. I don't know what it was. Seven years later after this movie is Bicentennial Man, where Robin Williams plays a robot. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I'm thinking, is Robin Williams a toy? And it, it makes me think of like the other movie, The Toy. Like I'm thinking, is Robin Williams some kind of child's plaything? And soon you realize he's not. And soon you realize that there's no children protagonists in this at all. The children in this movie are glorified extras at best. Child labor. I was expecting some kind of, especially, you know, with Lizzie, you're talking about maybe a Christmas movie, something involving kids. We don't have that at all. We've got a pretty unique kind of story. I I had really, there was no way to throw a dartboard and figure this out. 
Um, so yeah, this was my first and my second time watching. It took me two uh, viewings to kind of figure out how I feel about this movie. Lizzie, what do you think about it? Like uh, you said, you, for like an adult watching it, do you feel like there were things that like you, you were definitely like brand new to you? And do you think the movie holds up? Yes and yes. So, so much of the humor went right above my head as a kid. So revisiting it as an adult, it's really more of an adult movie, to be totally honest. I mean, the humor and the storyline is way more targeted towards an adult demographic. And so I really was able to appreciate the writing and the wittiness of it in a way that I wasn't as a kid. And as far as holding up, I honestly, I really think it does. I think that my dad and I have this expression with movies that are um, just simple and charming. We call them slice of life movies. And to me, I think this just falls into that category, maybe just with punched up with just like a little extra pizzazz to make it extra silly. But in terms of – Yeah, a little zany, a little crazy. But when you really take all of that away, I mean, it's just a really charming story. And I I absolutely think it holds up. I had so much fun rewatching it. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Why do I have to follow this? Hmm. Slice of life. I maybe I'll maybe I'll say something about that later. Interesting though. I, I love that you guys share that. <laughs> Indeed, uh, Chad. What about what about you? Here is uh, the, the idea that this movie is now thirty years old. Uh, do you feel like it holds up? And uh, I guess was there a surprise to seeing the PG thirteen rating and seeing like how this humor was presented? Yeah, let me touch on that first. Uh, that's probably my biggest issue with this movie, and it'll keep coming up but it it did surprise me this movie has an edge to it it's almost i don't want to say a meanness to it but it it's like you crank home alone which is a violent movie when you go back and watch it as an adult you crank that up a little bit extra Uh, as, as far as holding up listen any 90s movie that isn't the matrix that deals with tech we had this problem in hackers (laughs) it's a terrible representation of technology to the point that they have like little analog characters that go across the screens this makes no sense our our high-tech radar now they would be dots there's a so there's goofiness there's 90s just okay that's what we did the mtv references and the music video and the in the middle of this, that's a very early '90s thing to do. We have it in UHF. Uh, you don't do that now. You don't take a five to ten minute break to have a random music video. Oh, and it's a shame that they're yeah, not doing that now. Mean you shouldn't. <laughs> okay, all right. You guys can dance if you wanna. But I'm gonna leave my friends behind. So this is that's pretty good. I I still enjoyed it, but there are definitely things that are jarring. Of okay, this is. This is from a bygone era. That's there fair. Is something particular about this movie too, which is its unique setting, which I think we'll have to bring up later, is that it, you, you say slice of life. It seems like a slice of a, a truly a life that no one can have experience with, which is this toy factory in the middle of the rolling hills of Idaho uh, the, the the movie does a good job of making this space that the movie occurs in seem bizarre, whimsical, fantastical, 
and uh, then when you bring your own audience biases into it and like feel things and recognize things, especially as adults, I think, I think there's, there's a lot going for this movie. Really. I will say like slice of life. There is a, I can see there being a comfort to rewatching this movie, uh, particularly with a star like Robin Williams doing Mm -hmm. some very Robin Williams things. Uh, I will say in terms of holding up, you could almost say that there are some things that are prophetic about this movie, uh, which I would like to get into after the break. Speaking of the break, we have to take a break and you need to go watch Toys from 1992. After you watch it, we're going to come back from this break. We're going to have a little plot summary. We'll tell you about the movie. We'll spoil the movie. And then we're going to get into it. So we'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we are back, and it's time to hear our plot summary. Chad, you have a plot summary for toys for us from 1992. Remember, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Chad, take it away. A quirky toy maker knows he's in his final days and summons his military brother. Ken Zevo tells General Leland Zevo that his son, Leslie, is not ready to take over the family toy factory, so he's leaving it to the general. Leland, being a military man and a one-dimensional character, is dismayed that Zevo does not make war toys and begins a subtle, and then not-so-subtle, shift in Zevo's production line. Leslie feels pushed out and is strongly opposed to war toys. He confronts the general, but to no avail as departments are shut down and workers are laid off to accommodate Leland's increasingly restricted development rooms. Leslie, his robot sister, Alsatia, the general's son, Patrick, Leslie's love interest, Gwen, and then long-time, em- long-time employee, Owen Owens, infiltrate the factory and an epic confrontation between Leland's war toys and Zevo's traditional toys ensues. Leslie and crew emerge triumphant, and he takes over the family business. One-dimensional, eh? <laughs> he is, he, this is a perfect 90s character of you have one thing, and your your entire thing, you will be in a military uniform the entire movie. Oh, I, I actually think he's got some layers because he's, you know, he gets all, he's got, he gets in his feelings about his wife. And then he's got that relationship with his dad and his son. I don't know. I kind of think oh, there's little layers there. Don't make this guy Shrek. He does not have onion layers. <laughs> Who even needs a host to pose a question? I love that you guys just get right into it. <laughs> this is going to be all podcast. This is Lizzie just follies back. She's <laughs> like, this movie is awesome. These are well-developed characters. I'm like, this is a 90s staple of... I have one character trait, and it is war, which the military frowns on you wearing your uniform while 
off duty. Like yes. he's, just, he's strolling around. Three star general. Body three issues. Three star general. Because he has a British accent. I did like that. <laughs> Who couldn't get his fourth star because his dad spent too much time in England, which is why he picked up the English accent and attempted a southern accent. Yes. Right. <laughs> which was baffling to hear because you have to presume that Michael Gambon, who has this incredible stage pedigree and could probably do anything you asked of him, was asked, can you do a bad portrayal of a Southern accent from a British military guy who (laughs) serves in the U.S. uh, Army or military, whatever branch he was in? And he did. So, yeah, (laughs) he is a military man. So is his son, Patrick. Uh, th- this is, if you, if you look at this movie, the first 20 minutes or so, you might think this is a movie about Leland, not a movie about Leslie. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. I would agree yeah. with that for sure. There's illusions of my son's not ready, but they don't, they, they spend time in the hospital. We get the dad scene, the old four-star general. Which I wish he'd come, come back up. Like, yeah, like if, if he mattered a little bit more. Yeah, his nurse matters uh, later. Yeah. In the movie. <laughs> sort of. She's just there for plot exposition and to be attractive. She does something that does matter a bit. Yes, which is she reveals. You're yes. right. Plot exposition. She she well, first of all, has also slept with Leland, but right <laughs> reveals. So reveals that the thing that Lizzie you had brought up that he gets shaky and he starts getting emotional about his wife, which we understand is all a lie. Yes. So that's performance, not deep emotion. Or is it both? I don't know. I think you could argue that maybe it's guilt. Like he, you know, because he Ah, puts this front that his mother died of appendicitis and he starts crying and he's getting upset and it turns out that he sent her on a mission and she ended up, yeah, a recon mission and she ended up dying in the process. So I don't know. Maybe it's guilt. I would like to think that it's guilt, but you you really have no way of knowing. I mean, that whole scene of like, Debbie, did you do my dad? You didn't do my dad, Debbie. <laughs> like, right. And, you know, that's Patrick's one big weakness. So it's. It is necessary to have that scene because that's really when Patrick flips sides. You've realized that Patrick is, you know, I, I'll give it that Leland is one dimensional, but Patrick definitely has some layers to him. He's at least, you know, a an mini onion mold. Yeah, an onion mold. <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess I'm not going to go. He is one dimensional, but I'm trying. I'm going to try to give him something here. Uh, he he cares enough about his reputation. He cares about like the impact he leaves on the world. Um, and there is something that I'm surprised we're getting to this so early. There is something that is incredibly important to me, which is when he's talking to the other Washington men, when they're all in their uh, skivvies in the built building around them during that su- super secure meeting, he says something along the lines of, for the cost of, <laughs> we spent, the, the, the U.S. government spends more money on one stealth bomber than they do on cancer research for the entire country. Where did this come from? Yeah. 
So, so you know what, Lizzie? Maybe he does have a little more depth than we thought. An onion bulb, indeed. See, I took that as he's mad about the cancer research and wants more bombers. And wants more bombers. You know, he, he also has that scene when him and Patrick are out. It is after they went to the arcade. And they're camping out, for some reason, uh, yes. by, by the dock that has a, a two segments to it. Uh, does that end up mattering? I cannot remember. No. Sure seems like something fun or wacky was going to happen with that, but it doesn't. Patrick camouflaged or did something. He he said something that made his dad proud. I don't remember. He ended up was. leaving. He was like, "I'm let me out right here. Right. And yeah. he's like, why not? And he's like, well, because I, I, I got to figure out my surroundings on my own. He's like, you're always, always on the job. You know it, dad. And gets, <laughs> he shows <laughs> he's, that he's so- proud of his son. I will say is – is that one of the better running gags of this entire movie? Is that Patrick needs to blend in with where one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Like they're out, to, they're at dinner, and they're like thinking Patrick's actually kind of being rude because he's he's late. No one has any idea where he is, and it turns out he's been hiding in the couch the whole time. I love it so much. Yeah, I, I think there are. Uh, <laughs> I can't say like this is where that began, but one of the more popular characters from the TV show Arrested Development is a character named Jean Parmesan who shows up uh, out of out of nowhere all the time, much to the delight of all the other characters. And I think it's a delight whenever LL Cool J just you know, pops out of a couch. Yeah, or, uh, he's wearing a suit that's made of the same sh- shade of red as the walls. Yes, uh, turns around out of nowhere. Um, that is that is fun. So we've got. This character who really, it takes a little bit, but he becomes our bad guy. And I think there's no debating that. He becomes our bad guy. And then we've got our protagonist or our little team uh, made up of Leslie, who described by his father is a flake. Uh, I think of a flake as someone who's late or someone who drops plans. Uh, But flake, I feel like the movie that they were afraid to use another word. They were afraid to call him special, or they were afraid to call him whimsical or goofy. Uh, what did you feel about this introduction? Because it takes you a little while to figure out, and Chad, and this was your first watching, it takes you a little while to figure out what's going on with this guy. Right. Him and his sister, and the word that I had in my mind was touch. Some people will say, okay, they're a little touched, a little bit different something's absolutely something's different something's unique about them like, why are we not addressing this plot point and it got to the point where al was reading a bedtime story to joan cusack who at this point is well into her 30s and she's getting tucked into a giant light up <laughs> duck and a wonderful set by the way and yeah. I'm practically screaming, we need to address this. <laughs> like, are there chaperones? We need special aid, something. What is happening here? And it turns out she's a robot. But <laughs> <laughs> which seems like the biggest red herring of all time. Okay, you know, we're going to throw this to you. You're right, Chad. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> I really felt like I had been. Bamboozled? with that robot reveal though i will say there was something that made me think this movie isn't above doing something like that and that's not (laughs) this movie would completely boomerang you out of that direction 
Uh, Lizzie, this has been a, a staple of your household. Um, how do you view this Leslie Zevo character, uh, particularly with Robin Williams' portrayal? I, I mean, I love them. I love his whole vibe, and I love his him and his sister, and I love Gwen. I think you're right that flake isn't really the right word to use, but there's a really great scene where – Gwen is riding her training wheels and she's, you know, which is just like, I love that so much. And she's riding on her little training wheels trying to go home. And Leslie's in his car and he's trying, he's kind of teasing her a little bit about how she's, you know, a little long in the tooth to be riding training wheels. And he invites her to his car and offers to teach her, which is, of course, him making kind of a formal pass. They had just had a nice little lunch date together. And she kind of says it right there. She's like, I I like you, but I shouldn't because you just cannot take anything seriously. And I think that to me is probably a little bit what Ken was trying to get at is the fact that, you know, Leslie is all of the things. You know, he's definitely special and he's – whimsical and eccentric, but I think that all of that can also live inside of somebody who understands when it's time to be serious. And Leslie, I don't think ever really showed that quality until everything was about to get taken away from him. And then he, you know, he manned up. He did have that devil puppet in the car. Because I want to get laid. laid. (laughs) Which tells me he's done that before. Like, I don't know how successful of a pickup line, although he really didn't have, to put, before. he didn't have to put much effort into Robin Wright's character, Gwen. He's like, can I stay the night? She's like, okay, I guess my clothes have to come off immediately, <laughs> which was a very strange scene. Laughter is a powerful drug. I, they were really laughing, though. It was just like, can I stay here? Well, I guess I got to get naked. And we he had just escaped the sea swine. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and he's vulnerable and well, you know. And gross. <laughs> All, right. All right. Yeah, it wasn't like let's get out of the get you out of these wet clothes or any of that classic line. It was Jamie Foxx showing up, being voyeuristic and getting a bra over his robot. You hear the mm-hmm. bed squeaking in the background. Another nice little gag. Yeah. Yes. Um yeah, Baker and Sanchez out there in the uh, out there in the surveillance van. Yep, right. watching so, Yolanda and Steve. I am, I am frequently critical of romantic love in movies where I feel like it doesn't belong. Let's go back to uh, the way that you described him as touched. Maybe that's your West Virginia coming out. But I, I, <laughs> I look at this, I look at this movie, and I think before you know that Alsatia, Alsatia, is there are there two T's in that? Before no, you know that his one. sister's a robot. You do think that like, okay, they're both on the spectrum. There's either some autism or some Asperger's there. And I'm not throwing those words around willy nilly. It just seems like of the people that I've met and the people that uh, I love who I see, like these people are of that special mindset. And Lizzie, you brought up that what Kenny, what Ken Zevo, the former president, the one who passed, uh, Leslie's father said, uh, he's not ready but Leland holds the key. Yes. This is something that, do, do you believe that Kenneth realized that by installing his militaristic brother as the president of this company, that the way that this movie kind of panned out was 
things going according to plan? I actually do. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he ex- he expected the gigantic war between war toys and and old traditional Zevo toys. And in, in terms of how things came to pass, I don't necessarily think that was within Kenneth's plan, but I think the bones of bringing in Leland and changing Leslie the entire- will be able to determine that yes. there's a right and wrong way for this place to run. Yes, exactly. Of being like, you do not hold the values and the vision that Zevo Toys has. And rather than just kind of sit here and play with my smoke jacket and explore these vomit slices, like I'm actually going to like step up to the plate now and advocate for the heart and soul of this company. And I think that's really what was missing in him that got activated through through Leland. Yeah, it seems like a risky gamble because yeah. apparently his brother is entirely unhinged and willing to commit murder on the slightest bit of opposition. So either Ken's very much underestimating his brother or this is just like an insane gamble to me. It was a gamble. Uh, but I think we also learn that Kenny, that, that father Zevo, was eccentric as well, but must have been eccentric in a business savvy way. Uh, we do see his introduction. Uh, interesting sort of choice for the camera pan to look at. Uh, you have the lens on specifically Leland's military uniform, and it goes down his body while he's sitting in the chair to his shoes, which there's nothing special there. And then you pan over and you see some toys on the ground. And then you see that uh, Kenny Zevo is wearing some kind of sandal, some kind of funny little thing with some toys. And as you go up, that's when you get the slow realization that he's wearing a beanie cap with a collar on. Which is the point. This is funny. I look, look at this guy, big, powerful president wearing this cap. And you learn from Toodles himself, uh, Owen Owens, that like, yeah. <laughs> He actually, uh, he, he rigged it up to where this is like an early sign for his pacemaker going out. That's yeah, pretty interesting, pretty savvy and eccentric. But this guy built and has continued to run an extremely successful toy company, something that his son, who is not just eccentric, but described as can't take anything seriously. And that's where we get this Robin Williams machine gun joke delivery I don't know, half a dozen, maybe even 10 times of this movie where he's just going to unload. Is that one of those things that for you, Lizzie, as a family, you're just sort of like, I'm so familiar with his style that when he starts going, think about the little tray with the canapes and the eggs, or think about all the things he says in the car, or think about the things with the smoking jacket. There's so many of these opportunities for him to go off that uh, it just kind of seems like it's part of what you know and love about him. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a big reason why they brought on Robin Williams is because they they needed somebody that couldn't just act that, that almost just was that in a lot of ways. Because if, you know, watching Robin Williams stand up and watching him in so many of the roles that he's in, when you give him the freedom to just be himself, like that's really him like he really is that like talking a mile a minute thoughts all over the place just super loud eccentric guy and so that really channels into everything that 
Leslie is. And so he just I, – I think he embodied that 100%. And those scenes are the scenes that really stick with you and just give you that soft spot for Robin Williams. His speech to the toys – that was completely ad-libbed and I felt like that was the most where he was let off his leash and could just go. And he puts in a JFK quote, a Martin Luther King Jr. quote, a Mahatma Gandhi quote. He's just going nuts and that was brilliant. I I wanted more of that. Mahatma with, Gumby. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, he messes up or twists or plays with all of the quotes, but it's mm-hmm. just that trademark insanity from Robin Williams. Yes. And he gets a little tiny snippets, but I, I wanted them to give him just a little bit longer leash. Just give him a longer scene to do what he got to do for that toy speech. Cause that was awesome. That's what I was thinking. And the question was going to be, do we need more of that? Or do we need less of that? Because through my two watches of this movie, I, was, I don't know, just a, a bit confused as to how serious this movie is taking itself or not. And so, Chad, you're saying that you think we should have really, uh, you know, lengthened the leash and let him go more. What about what about you, Lizzie? I, I can agree with that. I can absolutely agree with that. To me, there's no such thing as too much Robin Williams. And I think that, you know, it, for an entertaining element, it's perfect. You know, you want more of that zaniness. But I also think that for the purposes of the actual story, I mean, every single time he did that, it just made you fall in love with him and almost just reiterate everything that Kenneth had said. So that's the original recipe, Leslie, is that silly, zany guy. And then he is able to take that and kind of marry it with this newfound maturity that he has. So I don't think that there was any issue with adding in more. Silly, zany guy which we know that he is, you put it beautifully, which was that he, that's what he is, it's not what he's playing. I heard yesterday, maybe two days ago, uh, somebody talking about writing comedy, which is that the worst thing you could do is put someone in a role where their character is funny. They were talking about the roles of the TV show Friends, is that of the Friends, one of them, Chandler, is the funny guy, and how that really creates this impossible task of, well, the show can be funny, but is this guy the funny thing? Are we having to play with running gags? Are we having to play with certain joke and punchline setups? There's a whole bunch of stuff that, like, if it weren't Robin Williams, you might think, ah, I don't I don't know if I buy it. This guy is just really funny. But we're given a little bit of a clue because um, Robin Wright, uh, which is what I'll call her because I cannot remember her name, Dawn or something, Robin <laughs> Wright in this movie – finds him very funny, which is great. And it's sweet and cute. Uh, Chad, were you sort of expecting this little uh, turtle dove uh, love kind of scene? And, you know, they sit at the lunch table and everyone leaves the cafeteria and they're just sitting there forever. Were you expecting this kind of relationship in this movie? I think so. But yeah, I did find Gwen's character kind of undercooked. They didn't have much to do for her at the end of the into the movie. And I don't think I kept listening to make sure because Robin Wright looks different here than she does in Princess Bride. And I'm used to seeing her now because she's still acting and still in shows. So she looks very different here and she's got her Southern accent, but they never say the character's name. As far as I can tell, Lizzie, maybe you can correct me, but I never heard Gwen. I had to pull it from IMDb. 
I think you might be right. I think it's possible that it's a quick exchange when they first meet in the cafeteria when they're in the lunch line. But it's like a blink if you miss it kind of thing. I, I want to say that they don't. Yeah. Which it also might be that Patrick, when he comes in for his inspection, the duplicator inspection, which by oh, the way, yes. <laughs> the, the, the delivery of those lines for him to be a serious character, you know, are you the only duplicator? There's duplicating going on here. Right. I, I did find myself, like, this is pretty good. Um, I think he might have said like, are you Gwen? Uh, something like that. So it, it okay. might have come up there. Yeah, blink and you miss it. I need to understand the process. I I did like their relationship. I wanted more of it, and I wanted her to matter a little more than to just, I can't remember the trope of uh, do women talk to each other in the movie without a male present? Do they have real conversation? Oh, yeah, the Bechdel test. Bechdel test, yes, thank you. Because she would have failed that a hundred times over. But she was a really interesting character. I, I like that she was brought in. She was the last hire of Kenny Zevo. Mm-hmm. And that she was hired for Leslie. I wanted her to have more of like a balancing act or or help him to stand up. And it just seemed like she was she was there to sleep with him. The straight and- man doesn't have to be a completely flat man or a dull man. Right. Uh, and I'm just using the tropes that she, I feel like she's there to be the, the straight man to his zany character, but she's so smitten right away mm-hmm. that we get zero conflict. I think zero conflict. Right. We do learn that the way for her to take him seriously is if he starts to take things seriously, but it's so quick and it's just on the side of the road. This doesn't even have time to marinate. It's just like, oh, no, I'll be serious. In fact, I'm planning on confronting my uncle today or tonight. And that, I believe, is maybe the first time that we see something being taken seriously. Uh, There are some moments earlier, uh, I think, in the film room study where they're looking at some of the gags. uh, There is a, a time when one of the other researchers... They're talking about poop in the tub. Yeah, we, yes. We've all done it. <laughs> we've all done it. And he it's looks over. And it's, <laughs> yeah, Chad, you got it. Yeah. This is not a shared experience where he kind of realizes that like, oh, wait, laughs are over. That's that was like too far. It seems like this movie doesn't acknowledge the line. She doesn't the line all the time. She does enjoy a good flatulence joke, though. Right, so, <laughs> yeah, there's some. Right. She's she's completely bought into his character, so we don't have any time for her to like have to wait for him to tighten things up. You know what though? I'm I'm glad she didn't just randomly cause unnecessary drama in the middle of the movie for the sake of having that plot point. I'm fine with her being on board with Leslie altogether, but yeah, just a little bit more of the okay, man up, show me the serious side of you. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I think if this movie were ever redone, she would definitely have, you know, busted his balls a little bit more. Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's, this movie is two hours long. And I think if you talk about like giving Robin, giving Chef Robin a little more time to cook, that this might have become what I think we wanted it financially to become, to be something really special, like a feather in his cap. And instead, if you listen to what the critics say, it's kind of mired in this odd kind of 
uh, world, this odd kind of story. So we, we learned that, that Uncle Leland is planning on turning the company into mass-produced war machines that can be piloted by little kids. Um, and Anders game. <laughs> Anders game. Anders game. <laughs> and we get a development of that particular plot revealed to us by Patrick that was really something else that really kind of surprised me, which was, oh, it, the plan is so smart. He's going to start it off with in underdeveloped neighborhoods. We're going to offer free uh, reading, writing skills via video computer. And so kids, you know, parents that can't put, pay for healthcare will take their kids there. And it's dastardly. And it's really, really good. Only what we play with, what we get to see is this sort of intra-company, intra-family situation inside of a building that has been, if you look from the, the digital maps, it kind of looks like the Pentagon uh, whenever you're looking at those things. Um, the action of this movie, uh, Lizzie, you look back fondly at the the toy fights or the, uh, the, I think we have these little vignettes here or there of just things that are visually appealing or surprising, like the duck crossing, whenever they have to stop uh, going <laughs> yeah. down. Like there, there's gotta be, and I'm, I'm actually aiming this towards you. There's gotta be these scenes, aside from just the big action scenes, these scenes that stick out for you. I want to hear some of them. Yes. So to me that the whole climatic war scene is probably one of my like least favorite scenes in the whole movie. I don't dislike it, but it's probably the one that I am – look back on and could probably do without. But I think that – so in just the way that the office itself is structured and I love how there's rolling hills. And so at first you see them riding in a golf cart up and down the hills, but then later they're running up and down the hills and just the visual of the entire office in, in general. So this – rolling hill hallway rather than just a boring old hallway that you have to walk down. And then the manufacturing line that they have where the that was probably one of my favorite scenes as a kid as well was the happy working song where they show all yeah. the different workers going down and like push the button. No, nope, <laughs> no, nope. that's how cults are started. The happy working song, it, that whole entire sequence is is a favorite for me. Um, when you're a kid, I think going to work is that. Yes. I mean, <laughs> that literally made me want to get a job. I begged my parents when I was 14 to let oh, me get a job because I just was convinced it was going to be so much fun. <laughs> the wealth gap. Uh, <laughs> what did you have to say about our happy worker scene? I mean, that part was a complete turnoff to me. Like, okay, <laughs> any, any place that tells me how I'm feeling at that particular moment, run, don't yeah. walk. Like, just, just, just get out. And then the remix will haunt my dreams. So thank you for that. Lizzie. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the remix sucks. I, 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 the, I think it is used so much that who, ha, huh. Ooh, yes, I, yes. Yeah. While, they, while they're running. That's another one. Yeah. Uh -huh. what? And, and I tours. see it having impact as it does, but I was just like, oh, you took this Tori Amos ballad and it turned it into this thing. There's also like when they're in 
when they're in Alsatia's like department or office, you can kind of hear just the music playing in the other room. And it's almost got this, strangely enough, it's almost got this like reggae beat to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, everybody there kind of loves this little world. Yeah. Uh, we're meant to believe. And then uh, part of our conflict is that good people are leaving. Yes. Uh, people are leaving. Nobody wants to stay here anymore. Which is what happens when you pull corporate perks. So managers, employers out there, you start taking away our perks. Quiet quitting. These people are just. <laughs> yeah. Quiet quitting. Uh, I actually, it's only because you said the thing about if they remade it, uh, if they remade it, then maybe uh, she would kind of change the way, <laughs> change the way that that interaction would go. Uh, here's that thing I wanted to bring up. I, I wanted to bring up something. I, I, was, I read some reviews. I, I read Ebert's review, and I read some of the reviews. You know, obviously, our critics didn't rate this very high. No. Uh, so I didn't go to the critics. I went to the people. So there's a certain really popular search engine out there that just compiled 10 of these reviews. I wanted to read some of them to you. Uh, and you just reminded oh, me of one. Um, so for some of these, there's no score attached, but some of them there are. And for some of them, I want to ask you guys what you thought they rated the movie. Uh, okay. For the first one, uh, this is a helpful review. People found this helpful. LMAO, how did they come up with these wild ideas? Can't wait for the upcoming musical version in 2023. So what do you think? Should we have Neil Patrick Harris playing like a sing-along, dance-along with this thing? Oh, my gosh. I would totally pay to see that. <laughs> I feel like he would do this. Yeah, I think he I, probably would for sure. Um, no, that what? one doesn't have a star rating to it, but I've got one that does. Okay. Right. This is a very helpful rating here. I think LL Cool J and Jamie Foxx were the best characters in it. Ooh, ouch. Oh, man. Ouchy. Okay. Um, out of what? How many? Out of five. five. Like okay. Us. Two? That's a two. Yeah. That's it's a, a three, actually. It's a three. Wow. Okay, good. LL favorite. Cool J is magnificent in it, so she must have really liked him. And that's why I wanted to bring up these reviews kind of sporadically is because I, I, I think LL Cool J has a lot of fun with this role. Uh, had you, I guess... If you grew up with it, you may have known him from this before you knew about his music career, I have to presume. Yes, 100%. I had not listened to the, don't call it a comeback, until I was at least like driving age, probably. And I know, you know, I'm young, so I, youngish. I don't feel young, but I'm an 88 baby, so I wasn't. (laughs) <laughs> All right, you just lost half a star. I'm sorry, I was <laughs> You were four years younger than me. My first CD was the Spice Girls, so I like kind of missed the LL Cool J era of his. But I think, but I do love him, and ladies do love Cool J, and I understand why. And I, when he came back, he had a big resurgence with J Lo, which is a song that my dad and I actually. Love together, which is kind of weird as an adult. With the, you know what song I'm talking about? Like the little duet that they had in the, the early 2000s. I don't. Uh, you know that LL Cool J and, and J Lo. Oh yes. Uh, if you sang it, I'd know it. She's but like, I, all I, my pride is all I have, and he goes, "Pride is what you had, baby girl. I'm what you have." Yeah, I do remember. <laughs> I do remember. That was like my first. Like I had no idea that. He was even a rapper. Like it was he this movie was truly my first introduction to him. And now that I know him and appreciate him as a music artist, I have such a deeper appreciation for him in this role because I feel like it was probably 
such a one-off for him at that time. Yeah, I think it's kind of risky to to play this kind of character. Totally, totally. I mean, he's silly and he's definitely supposed to be the most serious of them all, I think is probably fair to say, but so much humor is able to seep through the cracks of that wall that he tries so hard to put up and it's intentional and I think that he just he does a great job I think that's actually really hard to do is act serious while also managing to be funny then run full speed through the (laughs) the field to get away yeah I think people might know I mean people that are surprisingly there are people younger than us but uh, some people that might (laughs) know him as like some cop on some CSI show and he's been doing it for years and years and years there are people that probably don't know that Ice-T used to have a musical career (laughs) procedural uh what about jamie fox chad how did you like uh baker's character in this i loved it i didn't know this was his on-screen debut yeah this this is where he first shows up which is such a weird credit for him but i mean he he is spying on the whole love scene and really really wants that bra to fall off the robot i that entire scene was funny and i like that they get I'm sure we're going to talk about the music video, but I like that they're doing a callback to the security guards. They're watching this music video. <laughs> they taped it. So it, yes. Yeah. Lizzie, my first CD. Well, my first CD was a cassette, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, uh, they're sharing this music video and watching. We can talk about it now. Yeah. They, they have, a, it's, it becomes an instant hit. Uh, yes. The other security guards really like it. Uh, I, I actually thought this was one of my standout scenes of the movie is they they have a plan to get to the secret area, the restricted area, and they set up this kind of mirror looking thing. Which would have worked in and yes. of itself. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> what I'm getting at is that this movie doesn't let things happen that easy. No. <laughs> it, instead, we're going to make a big production out of it. What did we say at the top of the show? Yeah, we start with a six-minute Christmas pageant. The first note I took on the show was, this costs a lot of money. You keep reducing this. I'm sticking with Tim. <laughs> it, it, is, it is right around there. We'll say it's somewhere between <laughs> 10 and 10. That's what we'll say. Uh, but uh, like, like, wow, this thing, this is costing money. And this is production. And I, I thought like, oh, well, the mirror thing could work. But why do the mirror thing when you could – it seems like it was all practical too, the way they built it. Right. was like, Take a look at this thing we did, and I think that one really pays off. Yeah, everything they do is impractical from the very beginning. And honestly, I love it. Like the staircase is impractical to get to the office. Like why is it on a crank? Why does right. the staircase move? And it's not like it goes to a different door. It's just impractical. Uh, all of their hallways, the crossword puzzle walls. I I loved all those quirky things. Like it doesn't have to make sense. And the mirror is right there with it. Like you could have called it a day with the mirror. But instead, it allows them to get changed into very strange outfits. The security guards do not recognize people that have been around for years and are well known <laughs> to this entire company. And they're just tapping along to this awesome, very surreal music video. I love the music video. Uh, and, and Lizzie, they, they take time to actually just 
we don't actually need them watching the video anymore. We're just going to put the video on the screen. So now it's just you watching the video. Yes. It's so good. It's such a – like you were saying earlier, Chad, how they just don't do that anymore. And I really wish that they would because even though it, you're absolutely right, like it's not necessary, it is so, so, so fun. And it kind of calls back to that childlike – desire to just come up with a big plan. Like, you know, you kind of did a call back to Home Alone. Like this is a very adult Home Alone adjacent plan that they're hatching. And it's just, it's so much fun to see it unfold. Yeah. And the the music is great. I believe you called it a bop. Yes. Which it is. It sure is. (laughs) So we've got, we've got the really, really pretty, really beautiful uh, kind of carol type song, uh, the closing of the year. When they're driving to the funeral, unmistakably Enya. Yes. As, yes. As drive through. Lots of Enya. We talked about the Happy Worker song, uh, which I, I kind of like too. Um, then we have the that song. I, I just had to bring it up when we were talking about it uh, before we recorded the show. Uh, we, we were talking about it made me feel like uh, like talking heads or something. And it actually was Thomas Dolby of She Blinded Me With Science fame, who contributed to writing that song. Uh, and then once the battle starts, we've got Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Right. Of, you know, relax. So there's there's some fun stuff. Oh, sorry, I didn't I didn't even mention Grace Jones uh, with, with her involvement. And so, Lizzie, when you're saying that, like, that you can't find the soundtrack anymore or ever, I, I'm kind of surprised. I thought the music stood out. Aside from that remix of, with the hoo ha of the that one that one, one kind of got on my nerves. Kinda grew into that I well actually kind of like times. it. I kind of like it, but I no. So it, once upon a time, I was able to find the the soundtrack on iTunes, and then they took it off, and you can't even find it when you search it now. If you YouTube some of their stuff, you can definitely find it, but. At one point when this movie came out on that soundtrack, what makes me so sad is that the closing of the year, which I think is such a good Christmas song, the words are so precious. Seal does a little lair. He does the bridge of that song. And it's, you know, it's Seal and all of his glory. I mean, who doesn't love Seal? (laughs) So it's just making the song all the better. It's just so good. The soundtrack is so much fun. I mean, the movie itself is we just keep going back to the silly, zany, whimsical, eccentric. And the soundtrack is no different. I mean, the soundtrack really helps yield to that world that it's creating. It just makes it so much fun. Those Enya royal royalties, like that's what killed it. Probably. Uh, I didn't know that about Enya, but I will say I, she's I'm completely right. making that up. Please don't sue me, Enya. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, when I hear Enya, I think about the speaking of the '90s. I, I think about those tapes and CDs that oh were sold gosh. on uh, uh, like tubular bells and yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think or an Oco Flow. Or an Oco Flow. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't remember the name of the CD. Uh, I remember it well. Sent, send it. Yeah, I, I love that stuff. Um, so yeah, this this the music adds to it, but I think the the standout, the pride and joy, the shining beacon, the crown jewel of this movie is its visuals. Uh, this is this this movie, I believe, and without even revealing my my star rating. This movie could almost be taught in like film schools, but like you want to be impactful 
take a look at this. Chad, what really stood out to you about just sort of what we're seeing? I mean, the fact they filmed in front of the Windows XP background. Like, <laughs> Windows was... XP has that movie to thank. Yes, yes. The the rolling green hills. Like you you feel yeah. like you're in it's in Washington and Idaho, different yeah. different places there, but you kind of feel like you're in an in another world. Like I agree. Cornfield esque that they're riding through in these very green hills. It's almost Middle Earth to me. And then this giant it's almost Oz to me. Yeah, yeah, yes, Oz. I could all see of this inspiration. So I I agree with you. The the things that I will keep with me for this movie are definitely the bright visuals, just the office moving walls, even even for the bad scenes, like they're moving the cafeteria in and everyone's screaming like the Titanic is going down. Yeah. <laughs> like that got pretty dark, but okay. Titanic and then I was like, oh yeah, this movie came out four years before Titanic. Yeah, James Cameron clearly stole from them. So we know this. Yeah, yeah. I am thinking of you have the house that Leslie and Alsatia live in unfolds from nothing. Yes, someone had that idea. Said, let's go. Let's go with this. Okay. Um, We all the roads that they drive on are one lane, so that they can be driving through this little this little cut through the fields. And I think we come in, this is very early. The, the movie does a good job of setting this tone early of how things look. Um, you have Alsatia moving a dollhouse chair and then it pans out in that perfect way to where actually that dollhouse is an exact replica of the house they are in. And I'm thinking like, is this movie going to be with that side angle shot? Is this going to be without the muted colors? This is a much brighter, almost Wes Anderson style of of showing things on that on that side and that scale. But I mean, the colors are incredibly bright, uh, and this world is just incredibly bright, and, and it it almost does feel otherworldly to me. Yes, I would agree, and it's so fun in the sense that Ken. Daddy Zebo was able to build his his business, his career, but then it really carries over into his life and everything that he does. So this toy factory isn't just something that he's built. It's really bled into every aspect of his life. Like you said, like in his home and in Alessia's bed and, and every single thing that they do, there's an element to – it being affiliated with toys or having a silliness to it and wouldn't necessarily want to live in that particular world, but to be able to have a passion and be so passionate about it and have that bleed into everything that you do would be super cool. So from that perspective, it is really fun. Yeah. You could say, just as this reviewer said, this movie has everything. (laughs) <laughs> I thought it was really fun, freaky, surreal, heartwarming, and had a powerful message about how the industrial world interfaces with children, future adults, generations, with products, and also how taps the vein of truth revolving around how benign industries that started off in a well-meaning way indeed have a history of being taken over by harmful agendas. What do you think they rated it? I wrote that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I totally 
getting. So how many stars did you give it, Lizzie? I'm that? assuming five. I'm assuming that's a, a at least a four and a halfer. That's a four. That's a five stars. Woo! Really oh. buy into this, and yeah, you know, a freaky, surreal, heartwarming. Uh, I, I guess there is before before we move on to our sort of next segment the, the there is a darkness it's not on the front edge but there is the idea of um industry and the pursuit of uh this kind of selfish goal uh perverting this toy company into something else for the military um and the, the battle at the end is fun i would say that i got ideas of what is it the a-wing flying at the bridge of the executor yes uh, I, I got that image um it, it, it's it's but we we're also dealing with oh uncle leland is shooting real bullets at us and ki- trying to kill us right yeah. missiles and everything else so it, yeah. is there any aspect of the uh unhingedness that uh kind of will will stick with you or do you think it'll be this whole sort of amalgamation of the brightness the loudness the wackiness that will kind of stick with you for toys chad it made me think of futurama with zap brannigan and the killbots of just throwing men in front of them that's essentially what they did with these porcelain toys they threw these Ah. toys that are not going to do anything for the most part against these military militarized drones and everything else and they're just they're meat shields they are running them out of bullets magazines they're they are there to take the hits so the humans can run away and the robot gets hit too so she's a casualty but it, it did strike me because this is something the military has tried so growing up there was a game called america's army which was endorsed by the u.s army and so they put it out there and now we have tanks and or not tanks but drones and other things that are controlled by xbox controllers and the military's reasoning is this is what kids are familiar with so we are building these weapons that can easily be controlled by things that people have grown up using they're intuitive so there is a little bit of maybe it was going on in 92 but a bit prophetic for this movie of, hey, we are we are going to try and make the military look cool and appealing to children because, let's face it, we do have to recruit for our military. Yeah, you you nailed exactly what I was saying before the break, which is that that's exactly what I was talking about. Prophetic. Uh, the only thing that really wasn't prophetic about this movie is when Leland says that they slashed the military's budget because we know that's not happening in this movie. Right. No. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, when he walks into the room and Leslie walks, finally gets into the restricted area and is able to see what's going on, that scene, it's like walking into an arcade now. I mean, that's the big screens that curve. curve. Those were sweet. I want yes, some I mean, that's super cool. But I mean, you definitely see that now. You go to Malibu Jacks or any of those big arcade places, and you know, they're obviously hidden next to the whack-a-mole but you know but they're there (laughs) yeah i'm reminded of something that i don't know how much of a joke it was but i thought it was poignant (laughs) when one of the kids is destroying i think some city roads it says like how many people killed hundreds 
how many vehicles destroyed? And it's like Mitsubishi's, 100, Toyota's, 90, Ford's, 80, Volvo's, zero. They're safe. <laughs> Grand Theft <laughs> Auto <safe>. vibes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I want to talk more about this movie. I want to leave you with one. Hey, there are people out there that say, this is a five-star movie. I got one here. It says, early 90s weird times 10. It's a great cast and a fun movie. And I think we found some things that were fun about this. But I want to get to our awards. Are you all ready for our superlatives? Yes, ready? let's do it. All right, Lizzie, you brought this movie to the table. And so I want to hear who your MVP of toys is. MVP, without a doubt for me, is Robin Williams. And, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but it's just his own really unique brand of silliness and just uh, that energy that's like espresso plus just never stops. And Mm – but with that also comes this brilliance. You know, he's not just silly. he It's clever humor. And I think that I'd, this movie would not be the same without him. And I just cannot think of anybody that could replace him. So I think it's, it's got to be Robin Williams. That's a great point. There's that This is a, a, essentially something only he could – essentially something only he could do. Uh, Chad, who's your MVP? The set designers. That is what is going to stick with me throughout this movie. It's just how unique – there's – there's really not anything like it. I I did read, I'm not going to pretend to be the art guy on Retro Movie Roundtable, but I did say it was heavily influenced by Rene Magritte's uh, surrealist paintings, and that it does feel, we've used the word surreal quite a bit. Uh, there's also the music video for some of the Dada movement, things like that. So somebody was really boning up on their homework and just, given a ton of budget to do what they wanted and they went for it. I love it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, those set designers and production designers are Ferdinando Scarfiotti and Linda DeSena uh, because that's my MVP too. Is It's nice. such a spectacular showing from them that I thought they, they kind of deserved that. We know what Robin Williams can do. And I think uh, in this role, I, I was with you, Chad, is I think we need a little bit more either that or we need a little bit less because we know that he's gone towards the dramatic too and been successful in it, uh, very successful in it. So I, I, I didn't know. I felt like we were in a, a no man's land with how much leeway we were giving him. Uh, but So that's why I went with them as well. What is your best supporting actor, Lizzie? I went with LL Cool J. I just – I think that – I loved him as a kid. I thought that he was so fun and he was one of my favorite characters to watch just with – the camo and as a kid that was always a fun element and i think watching him as an adult i just have so much of appreciation for how well he was able to play that role to be serious and funny at the same time and his character sticks with you uh and there are some things that will stick with me too he doesn't like his food to touch right (laughs) i agree with that i i am here for that rant of no food touching sam i fully agree i would I would eat a kid's plate if they'd still give it to me where everything's sectioned off. Yes, these are my people. (laughs) Oh, man, this is becoming a really revealing podcast. (laughs) My wife criticizes me because I'll eat one food at a time to keep them from. Yes. You save the best for last. That's what I do. She's like, don't you like this? I'm I'm getting to it. And yes, I do save the best. I've eaten like that since, since day one. This is correct. It's really funny. <laughs> Dustin is mortified. 
all my food needs to touch all the time. <laughs> no. It doesn't have that much time on the plate before it's gone. It's going to touch eventually. Uh, well, who's your best supporting actor, Chad? Robin Wright. I think she had great scenes. I love the Southern accents. She's actually from Texas. I had no idea. I'm I'm kind of curious if that's closer to what she grew up with. She grew up in Southern California. She did left she? Texas before she was two years old. All right, then probably not. But I, I did like her Southern accent. It was adorable on her. And I I thought she needed more to do at the end. Yeah. Uh, it's a good choice. <laughs> I, But you brought up the thing I hate most. Which fake is Southern a, accents? It's a fake Southern accent. Because she's a SoCal surfer girl. and But hey, it, it was charming. And you don't you don't get tired of seeing her, right? Uh, I, I liked her character too. I'm going with LL Cool J. Uh, for a little bit, I thought, is this a caricature that he's going to look back and regret playing, like a stepping stone along the way of his acting career? But I think there should be some pride in it. Like this is this is fun uh, and uh, challenging to not be like <clears throat> a, a ridicule. Like a, like a ridiculous role. It was almost necessary. And his information is what kind of turns the tide of the, the way that this movie goes. Who is your hidden gem, Lizzie? I actually just put the fact that Gwen rides training wheels is my hidden gem because I, you know, that's something that doesn't necessarily need to be there. It doesn't fuel any kind of plot story because if they wanted Gwen to get in the car with Leslie, there was a million different ways that they could have done it, right? So it's not – it wasn't a necessity. But for whatever reason, I just think that whole little miniature arc was just so charming. Like this is a grown woman just riding her bike with training wheels. And then, you know, at the very end, there's the payoff. You see her riding her bike at the very end and she's balancing like an adult. And uh, I don't know. I just – I think that was – such a cute little aside. And she's dressed like something. <laughs> the, the, what the beret. Is that? She's like a uh, little Scottish girl, yeah. like a Scottish American girl doll. Hey, there we go. Full circle. <laughs> That's what she is. Uh, what's your hidden gem, Chad? Yearly Smith, the voice of Lisa Simpson. She shows up. She's one of the toy makers that's being berated. Like you'll recognize her. She's just a very diminutive diminutive woman with a very tiny voice, but she's fun whenever she shows up. Uh, she is fun. And she, uh, my hidden gem is the team of sort of toy developer uh, novelty researchers that work alongside Leslie uh, during the film room study, during the fake vomit testing room. Fantastic. Uh, I, that was in the entire movie the most well-paced delivery of wit is when yes. those people are in the room. Yeah. Now there is a moment when one or two of them is at the big, beautiful, gorgeous wooden table inside the room. When we first learn that there's been some corporate espionage going on and they have no comedic impact there, but when they are the focal point of delivering these lines yes. in the order they do, it's an absolutely stellar. And so I, I made sure to mention yeah. at least, well, Can we get some international vomit? Like this is clearly the vomit of a white man. <laughs> That's really funny. That yeah. felt straight out of the office or something, something yes. far more modern than what this movie was. So yeah, I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. 
Yeah, they, they did a great job with that. <laughs> there should be like some peas and carrots in here. Are you telling me we don't have the money for peas and carrots? <laughs> <laughs> Stop. Okay, uh, Lizzie, you got to recast someone in this movie. Who are you recasting? Yes, I would replace Jamie Foxx's character with Billy Crystal because I just – I think that they're kind of this dynamic duo, especially in the 90s, and I just think that it would have been so fun to just see a tiny little cameo in there and, you know, you ne- never got hurt. No one ever got hurt by adding Billy Crystal in your movie. I think he would have – Yeah, he would have ad-libbed so well the scene with the bra and the robot, and I just – I think that would have been clever. That's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, uh, yeah, I like that. And I liked Jamie Foxx's portrayal too, but Billy Crystal adds something. Uh, who's your recast, Chad? I, he's Lizzie's MVP, but I think I'm recasting Robin Williams. What? I, I know, but it doesn't work date-wise, but I think if we're, we're talking about remaking this movie, put Will Ferrell in it. I feel like Will Ferrell can bring that childlike joy too. He, okay, I will agree with you with that. I think if they were to remake it, he probably would be the only person to be able to do it because his portrayal of Buddy is untouchable. Classic. Yeah, I, I think better. I think better at portraying youthful for someone who's not young. Robin Williams was 40 when this was filmed. Right. And before I get to my recast, and I love continuing the discussion into our superlatives, I mentioned that there's no youth protagonist here. And it's not like I'm always advocating for there to be more kid actors. Right. But it did seem strange that this story, this world is more like not just young. We don't need, we're not talking about 22 year old, 24. They're not trying to make Robin Williams look like he's someone in his 30s. Like this is a grown man. Mm-hmm. I thought that was strange. And I, I, I might consider. If maybe the dates would work with Will Ferrell right at 21 years old playing a man child, I think that could work. I was surprised it wasn't that, in fact. My recast, I went with somebody small. Donald O'Connor did nothing for me as Kenneth Zebo. Uh, nothing at all. And uh, sorry if it would seem too on the nose, but I really would have liked to see a uh, an aging Gene Wilder as Aww. a toy factory president. You know, who, that makes me so sad. I love him so much. Yeah. I th- and, you know, we, we know him as a, as a, runs a factory at other places, but I think that that could have been fun. <laughs> uh, what's your best shot, Lizzie? My best shot is we talked about it a little bit where Alsatia is playing with her dollhouse and then they do that pan out where you realize that the dollhouse is an exact replica of their actual house. I just... I find that so visually stimulating and it was just fun as a kid and it's still fun now. Yeah, it, it was – and it was early. It was, was kind of neat. And it's our our first time that we even see uh, her and Leslie and they're all they're all in their, their black, their morning clothes. Uh, yeah, cool shot. What's yours, Chad? The golf cart scene where they're going up and down the green hills and it's just as – it's a still shot, and we're getting the dips, and they're going out of frame and then back into frame. It makes no sense from a practicality, yes. <laughs> but, but it's whimsical. It's silly. I I had fun. You know that that makes me think of the other. There are other things that don't make sense in this movie. Uh, they're all running down that same space later in the movie. Yes, uh, during the like the alert, like oh, the offensive has started. Um, 
but aside from aside from Patrick disabling something, I don't think there's any reason for any of them to be in the restricted area. <laughs> but, but I'm glad that they are because it creates the suspense. But uh, w- th- with his, if we believe him to be this like master planner, I just like stay safe, y'all. But it had it had some fun stuff with them running around. Uh, my best shot is I, I, I remember writing my note as it happened. Um, and so I'll just read my note for, for, for verbatim. Okay, so Alsatia is talking to Daddy at the grave, which is among these beautiful, artificial-looking rolling hills. And then there's a giant elephant at the gravesite. Pulling <laughs> <laughs> bubbles out of its nose as the sun sets is an incredible piece of work. Yes. What is it doing here? It's so it, pretty, though. Oh, my so gosh. Pretty. And so well done. And I'm like, I- I've done that before. Uh, Chad, when we did Leprechaun, do you, do you remember when I was blown away at that beautiful scene where they hide the gold coin in the old truck under a tree? When the rainbow comes in, yes. It's the it's the most picturesque shot. And you think to yourself, well, it must have been cloudy or rainy on other days, and this was just the perfect day. But like sometimes you get something just wow out of nowhere. Uh, speaking of wow, <laughs> what is your uh, best scene, Lizzie? This is really, really hard for me, but I think my favorite scene is probably the music video for Yolanda and Steve. I I just – it's so unique and there's just nothing else like it and I – like we've talked about before, it doesn't – it didn't need to happen necessarily, but I'm so happy that it did because that has stuck with me so much throughout – just throughout my lifetime. I love it so much and the song's bop. <laughs> yeah, and everyone likes it. Yeah. Uh, that that helped me throughout the movie is that, oh, no, like the security guards like it too. Yes. <laughs> it's good. Uh, what's your best scene, Chad? That's mine as well. And it's because the security guards are getting into it. They can't help but be entranced by this video. So it could have just been the video and we could have just cut straight to that. And I think I would have been weirded out and bored of it. But because there are two guys slowly getting drawn into this weird world, that just made it so much better for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, that there is with those two guys, like, I didn't understand. Are these guys, these guys aren't military. No, they're, they work there. They should yeah. know who these people are. 100%. They're not they're in disguise. Bad. They are bad <laughs> at their jobs. They're like, they have been quiet quitting for years. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for me, it's the vomit inspection scene. Uh, yes. It's a great little vignette. And what it did, the the good joke in it was, I mean, there were many good jokes, but the one that like kind of knocked me off my uh, kilter was, uh, <laughs> oh, oh no, we're under attack by a crossword puzzle. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that is really good. <laughs> and like the, the conflict of, well, we know we know that Uncle Leland's doing something bad, but it's actually not really affecting our work until he's taking up space. And it seems like they're surrounded by infinite space, but the space just kind of like is crushing in on them, and they climb up on the table, and they're still talking about it. Um, I, I thought we need way more vignettes like that um, of this place running with these production meetings. Uh, I, I feel like we could have diverted time to more of those. I, I think this movie did those really well. Uh, so I liked that scene. 
How about a wardrobe or a makeup moment, Lizzie? This one's really hard, but I love Alisatia's doll clothes because one thing that I will say, and I don't, I don't know what your history is with doll clothes, but that particular type of doll clothes that she has, when I was a little girl, they would, you'd have these paper dolls, so they're completely flat, one-dimensional dolls, and then the clothes would fold over the the doll's body and so yes there's be these little tabs over and so just seeing like that little extra add-on of the tabs on top of her shoulders it's just it's just so funny and so sweet and that and her little wigs copiers are here the new designs are here and Joan Cusack is so weird in the best way and I just (laughs) I just I, I love her little doll outfits I, I love her doll outfits, but I don't love much else that she does. I like her morning outfit. So morning and then the doll outfits. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff that she wears that's just kind of like that's – I'm just going to say it like however they said it at the production table. Like, oh, that's what a weird person wears. Um, <laughs> Probably. And I didn't yeah. love that. But the, they, they did knock it out of the park with the – she likes to wear doll clothes. Uh, what about your wardrobe or makeup moment, Chad? General Zevo's new uniform when he he starts hemming it up and he's got this multicolored I, I think of a toy when I was little called a Balzac but in the 90s they had just it was like somebody vomited the color wheel onto clothing and this this is what he did he's got his military hat and the uniform and it's just bright and colorful and loud like the rest of this movie and I enjoyed it he went back to the military uniform for the showdown though I know. Oh, and he has an all black one too. Yes. Uh, I liked those. I liked, I really liked LL Cool J's black uniform. Uh, I think he's probably the only one of those that pulls it off. Uh, <laughs> but I really liked that. He also had some, some cool sunglasses with it. Um, but uh, my best wardrobe or makeup moment is, as I've done before, it's actually a worst <laughs> wardrobe moment, which is the body of sound coat. The bo- <laughs> yes. It was perhaps the most out of place, simply there for a joke, eyesore, ear sore gag yeah. that ended up having no side effect except for being annoying. So annoying that you can't hear the funny things that the other researchers there are saying. Uh, and it ends the scene. It's become my new worst wardrobe moment across all mediums, across all of our podcasts. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Thankfully, beating out Joan Cusack's butterfly hair clips from Runaway Bride. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that was an epic rant over hair clips. Those were so and, popular. I had those as a kid. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to Runaway Bride then. I love Runaway Bride. Oh. I did too. Dustin did not. <laughs> oh, funny. Listeners, you want to hear what I have to say about Joan Cusack and Julia Roberts in that movie. Uh, we, that, check it out. I think that was nearly two years ago now. Hardware beauty goes nuts <laughs> and bolts. <That's> the- <laughs> okay, we've got two left, um, and one of them is very hard for me. Uh, Lizzie, change one thing about this movie. I would have liked to have seen an actual confrontation between Leland and Patrick. I, You know, when Patrick realizes that Leland's been lying about his mom this whole time, and, you know, of course, that's his weak spot. So the moment that he finds – he's already feeling like 
his dad's pushing the limit and the boundaries and then that takes him over the edge to where he officially goes onto Leslie's side and starts fighting for Zevo to remain Zevo toys. But I – and, you know, they make a quick – little aside where Leland is walking and he's like, oh yeah, Patrick, he's just one word about his mom and he gets all sensitive, something into that vein. So I just would have loved to have seen like an actual confrontation. And I think that perhaps to your point, Chad, that you gave a while ago about him being, about Leland being one dimensional, I would like to think that if they had a scene like that in there, you'd see a lot of dimension. And because, you know, it's, you're fighting with your, how can he not have any emotion? It's one thing to be shooting at your nephew. I mean, that's bad enough, but like your own son is in there. Like you, you know, it's it's all bad, but I think how can you not have this extra layer of feeling like a complete monster? So I think that would uh, have been welcome. Yeah, would have been interesting. <laughs> We've yeah. had LL Cool J say, "You got mom killed impersonating Jane Fonda. She's black. Yeah, like, we we don't know that information. She could be white, but right, but it could have been, funny yeah, scene. It, could have been it could have been so much. And I, I'll stop myself there because if I start going off of the sentence of what this could have been, uh, we'll get to a different part of the show. What's your change? One thing, Chad." So I'm about to do some pearl clutching, but it didn't feel like it fit Leslie's character to say the amount of profanity that he did. And he had some big ones in there. And if if he's supposed to be like this childlike, whimsical character, some of the words just didn't fit that character at all. And it was jarring to me. So I, Dustin, you kind of talked about where... I felt the same way. Where does this movie want to land? Does it want to be dark and edgy or does it want to be child friendly? And I don't think it picked. I don't think it committed. And you can go dark and edgy and es- establish more of that profanity, but it felt like, okay, kids, but also this. Yeah, I, I felt us floating between where we wanted to land. Uh, that, that, yeah. And so th- that is... That that's a nice change. One thing I will say for for me, there's a there's a lot I would change about this movie. So I tried really hard to like this and to and to parse it out into the things I liked and to build it back up. Um, but if I have to choose one, um, if we're gonna mobilize the toy army, let's have Alsatia do it. She doesn't really do much. She does. She and Gwen do very, very little. And I'd like to see them both matter more. And if I'm going to have Alsatia do this thing with the the toys, knowing that she's a robot, because you don't know that yet, knowing that she's a robot, there could be a cool, like, interfacing scene, mm-hmm. maybe. And it's not what I want. What I want is for her to be a, a human. I don't want her to be a robot. I want her to be touched, as we say in the South. I want her to be um, a a special kind of person. And I want her attention to detail. And I want her, um, I want the caring that comes from the type of person that Joan Cusack can play. I want that to come out and not be thrown away as a gag, which I think it is. Because I want to really like that character. And it's impossible once you know to watch the movie again and want 
that from a character that has such potential. So that's that's mine. I, I know it sounded like more than one thing, but really it's it's can we have Alsatia be real and matter? Yeah. That's I like that. I, that bathroom scene with her, we haven't talked about that at all, but that one bathroom scene where she's, you know, she's sitting in the corner and she's singing, looking up and singing, you know, in the still of the night and then Gwen walk, walks in and she's just so funny how she's like, come in here, sing it with me, sing it with me. And then Gwen starts singing it and she's like, in the still of the night with her little accent. And she's actually pretty cute. She's like, oh, I wouldn't, I don't think you should do that ever again. Maybe we should try it as a duet. Perhaps your voice will sound more acceptable that way. <laughs> yeah. It's, it seemed uh, there's a word used in this movie quite a bit, innocence. And mm-hmm. it's like she has that. But if Kenny Zevo made this robot to help Leslie, I think he failed. Yeah. Uh, but if that character exists in a different way, I think it's a pretty big success. Okay. What is your best quote, Lizzie? So I picked the quote that's the thing that my family and I quote all the time, and it's Patrick's quote. So I'm going to read it verbatim. He's like, I can't even eat. The food keeps touching. I'm, I like military plates. I'm a military man. I want a military meal. I want my <laughs> string beans to be quarantined. <laughs> we quote that all of the time because – I'm like that. And so anytime that, you know, Thanksgiving, any kind of those like big meals where you just plop a lot of stuff on your plate, I still am very cognizant of making sure that my food doesn't touch. And everybody in my family teases me about it. And we always go back to that quote. As Michael Jackson says, you are not alone, Lizzie. You've got a former me. Uh, that, and there's a good Michael Jackson quote in this one from Robin, delivered very funny. Uh, what's your best quote, Chad? War is the domain of a small penis. <laughs> uh, that's good. I thought you were going to go with the kind of poignant war quote that is given. No, poignant is not the right word. But it's, it's, a, it's a meaningful kind of war quote. It comes from Leland way later. Um, and it's, it's, you would think he's on the cusp of some great battle, but when he's describing his moment, uh, but my quote is actually from Baker from Jamie Foxx's character. He is being asked by either a superior officer or from Patrick himself. But the question is, what does he know? And, uh, they're talking about like immediately after their surveillance scene and the implied sex scene. And, And so his answer is, I don't think he's seen enough. Not enough to make any sense of it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's a perfectly delivered line. Yeah. And a little comedy for mom and dad if we're watching this movie with the kids, which, why would you? It's PG-13. Strange. Now, it's time to rate this movie. We do a five-star scale, lowest being a .5, highest being five. And I'm going to pull an audible here. I want to go first because I feel like I might be a little different than you two. Maybe. Uh Uh-oh. I'm going to go first. I'm going to give it two stars. Ouch. For the visuals and the flares of comedic moments that we get throughout the movie. I think our sort of intra-family, intra-business plot is strange. We don't even know who our main character is for a while. Um, I think we miss out on some some big stuff. Uh, Lizzie, you brought up like a, a nice, like an actual confrontation between two of our main characters. Some actual conflict that isn't just breezed by at 60 miles an hour. 
I'd love to see that. Um, I think we get zagged out of things and I want to believe it was a choice from our director to like, to keep us guessing. But after two watches, and I will say I was kind of dreading that second watch after two watches, I was like, where I cannot figure this out. And for everything Robin Williams does so well, Chad, we brought this up. I do, I want way more of it or do I want less of it and have the tone of the movie change? Just for the record, I could see how this could be like, yeah, it's part of like kind of what we know. And because it's what we know, we like to revisit it as a family. And, you know, there are several movies like that. We brought it up earlier in the show. But this one for me, I just caught it at the wrong time. It it doesn't work for me. It's a it's a two stars. Uh, So I wanted to get mine out of the way so that we could move. We're going to go to you, Chad. What's your rating here? I think I'm going to go three stars. I It has rough edges. I think we've thoroughly established that. But I also see that cult classic in it. And for me, it's just I wanted it to pick a lane. I wanted it to either be a kid's movie and just go full out whimsical fun, or I wanted it to be that PG-13 lean into it and be a little darker, a little edgier, and just a little farcical. I... I'm surprised this is not a 29% movie and a 39% audience score. That's that feels very, very mean. I had a good time. I enjoyed it. I, I think I'll watch it again. That's, that's not always going to happen in the three star land. I, this is one I think I'll come back to. Nice. Yeah. I think, I think three, I think three is a, a I would consider it a generous score. Lizzie. What is <laughs> rating of this? <laughs> Uh, you know, I – so first, I you all make some very fair points. I fully agree with the – especially the plot point of it not really picking a lane of where it wants to go into. I really, truly see that. But I cannot help myself. It just has to be a five-star movie for me because I'm so biased. I just – I my bias is completely overruling any of the cracks that I see in this movie and I just – love it. It is just like so much fun for me and so much fun to revisit it. And I, to me, rewatchability is a huge factor in my rating and just my entertainment. And like both of those are just through the roof. So I can forgive the things that they should change and just love it anyway. And it's not part of my role to try to bring your score down. And it's not, I do not need to uh, like try to justify my own score. Uh, but I will leave you with this. I pulled some punches as well in this recording. Uh, maybe I'm the one that's different. Sounds like I am. But I think there's a lot of fun to this movie. But we love all movies. We love watching them. We love doing the podcast. And we've got to do one for next time too. So, Chad, can you help me select a movie for next time? I sure do. The name is Bond. James Bond. And the decade is the 80s. The 1980s that makes our options. Option number one. Octopussy from 1983. We are not picking this one. I'm not even going to read the description. We are not picking Octopussy. <laughs> okay, I don't it's get not, that. <laughs> it's, it's not happening. Option two, The Living Daylights from 1987. James Bond is sent to investigate a KGB policy to kill all enemy spies and uncovers an arms deal that potentially has major global ramifications. Option three, License to Kill from 1989. A vengeful James Bond goes rogue to infiltrate and take down the organization of a drug lord who has murdered his friend's new wife 
and left him near death. So, Dustin, of the two options which you're allowed <laughs> to pick from, which James Bond film are we going to watch? We are going late in the decade with License to Kill. All right. He does indeed have a License to Kill. Well, Chad, thank you for helping me choose uh, for next time. Sure thing. Always glad to do no accent whatsoever. Russell just sets me up for failure. (laughs) (laughs) The name's Chad. Chad Bond. (laughs) Lizzie, thank you for choosing this movie. I will say uh, it it was a pleasure to experience. Sorry if it felt as if I was uh, being a little heavy-handed. No, I think, you know, I I appreciate the the color that you bring to to the movie and I think I think we all can agree that it's an important movie to watch just because it's so visually stimulating. I mean, I think we all agree on that. So, I mean, it's cool to at least find that common ground. Let that be the common denominator. There we go. And thank you all the lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? Oh, Captain, my Captain.